or at the parable of the tenants, which comes to us, church, in our text this morning, following the authority of Jesus Christ being challenged, or after Jesus Christ came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking into the temple, the chief priest, the scribes and the elders, a.k.a. members of the Sanhedrin church, or members of the Jewish high court here, church, For they came up to Jesus Christ, and they said to him, as we see in Mark chapter 11, verse 28, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? These things seemingly referring to, especially within the present context here, to when Jesus Christ rolled up into the temple the day before and began driving out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and not allowing anyone to carry anything through the temple, and then teaching and saying in the temple, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And what the Sanhedrin were ultimately trying to do here, and asking Jesus Christ, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you to the authority to do them, was in essence trying to trap Jesus Christ, either by getting him to say that no one gave him the authority, verse 28, to do these things, or that he was merely doing these things based on his own accord, which in that case, church, the Sanhedrin then could quite simply tell all of Jesus' followers at this time that his authority was not really from God and that there really was no reason to follow him, or by getting Jesus Christ instead here, church, to say that his authority to do these things really was from God, which in that case, The Sanhedrin then could quite simply arrest Jesus Christ on a charge of blasphemy here and ultimately demand then for his death and execution as well. And thus Jesus Christ, for he responds back to the Sanhedrin's questions here in verse 28, not by answering their questions directly, but instead with a question of his own. That question being verse 30, for was the baptism of John from heaven or for man. And that was the ministry and the baptism of John the Baptist, divinely commissioned and authorized by God, or did it merely originate from man? To which the Sanhedrin then, as we see in verse 31, discussed this question with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe in him? But verse 32, if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people for they all held that John was really a prophet. And thus the Sanhedrin then replied back to Jesus Christ in verse 33 by saying, we do not know, since in short they did not want to admit that John's baptism or that John's ministry was truly commissioned by God, since if they did, they would be forced then to also acknowledge Jesus' divine authority as well since John the Baptist made clear in his ministry that Jesus Christ was indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John chapter 1. And yet they also did not want to say here that John's baptism was merely from man, since as we can clearly see in verse 32, they were afraid of what the people might do to them, since they all held that John the Baptist really was a prophet. 
And thus Jesus Christ then responds back to the Sanhedrin here in verse 33 by simply saying to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ was not done here with the Sanhedrin, but instead, as we will see in our text today, Jesus Christ then goes on to share with these members of the Sanhedrin a parable, which takes us now, church, to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christian, continue to accept, believe in, and follow the Son of God, Jesus Christ, since God the Father does not take kindly to those who ultimately reject His Son. Again, our thesis statement this morning, church, is this. Christian, continue to accept Believe in and follow the Son of God, Jesus Christ, since God the Father does not take kindly to those who ultimately reject His Son. And us at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you as our gift to you this morning. Because trust me, we want you all to have your very own copy of the Word of God. And the only thing we ask, if indeed you do take and keep one of our church Bibles, is that you read it, starting today, by turning that brand new Bible of yours to page 848, and by joining us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we will be in Mark chapter 12 this morning, church. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 12. Where John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to an into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you this morning, as the body of Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that we have no inkling in our hearts this morning, no desires in our heads this morning to reject any part of your Son, Jesus Christ but that instead we willingly accept all that he has to say, believe all that he commands, and willingly follow him wherever he calls us to go. Father, we are surrounded by a world at times that rejects Jesus Christ, that wants us to reject Jesus Christ, but as we see today, there is no victory for anyone who rejects Jesus Christ. Thus, I pray that this parable pierces us to the core this morning. For let us not be like the hard-headed, hard-hearted Sanhedrin here, these religious leaders who knew that this text was about them and yet still went on to kill Jesus Christ, to reject Jesus Christ. But instead, let it humble us this morning, Lord, to evaluate every aspect of our life to make sure that there is not any place, any room in our life for nothing other than pure acceptance of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you help my lisping and stammering tongue this morning. Father, I pray that my words are glorifying to you and that they build up this dear flock, this dear congregation, and that what we have to offer you this morning via the preaching of the word, via our prayers this morning, our songs, the offering, and Father, as we come to you at your table in a bit, Lord, that it is a sacrifice that pleases you and glorifies you. Do this work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, our merciful and patient God has sent us his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us be sure to accept him and not to reject him. Our merciful and patient God has sent us his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us be sure to accept him and not to reject him. Verses 1 through 8. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So we open here in verse 1 with Jesus Christ, after being asked by the Sanhedrin initially in Mark chapter 11, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? 
And Jesus Christ, responding back to them in verse 30 by asking, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And the Sanhedrin then, responding back to Jesus Christ in verse 33 by saying, we do not know. And Jesus Christ simply saying back to them in verse 33, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus Christ then, as we see in our text today, goes on in verse 1 to speak to the Sanhedrin in parables, or by using a story here, church, in order to communicate to them and to whoever else was present with them at this time a certain spiritual lesson. And the parable that Jesus Christ shared with them, for it begins like this in verse 1, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And this parable, church, for it begins very similarly, and quite certainly seems to be borrowing imagery, as numerous scholars have pointed out here, from Isaiah chapter 5, which initially reads in verses 1 and 2, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then in verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And similarly, the imagery in our parable here today, church, is this. For the man who planted the vineyard in Mark chapter 12, verse 1, is none other than God the Father. And the vineyard then that was planted by the man in verse 1 is none other than Israel. And we have a picture here, church, in our parable today of a man who planted a vineyard and who put a fence up around his vineyard in order to keep the animals out of it and who dug a pit for the wine press in order to gather all the juice from the crushed grapes from it, and who even then built a tower in order to keep watch over it, and who then, verse 1, leased it or rented it out to tenants, all while he, the vineyard owner, verse 1, went into another country. The tenants here, church, representing the religious leaders of Israel. And nevertheless, following the vineyard owner here, planting a vineyard and getting it all ready to go and then leasing it out to tenants, which, mind you, church, was a very common practice of that day. Verse 2, when the season came, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to the tenants in order to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, since typically the owner of the vineyard and the tenants' church would come to an agreement in their lease contract as to how much of the crop each would receive. Or to put it another way, the owner of the vineyard, in essence, would be paid by the tenant farmers in the form of a percentage of the crop that they ultimately cultivated in the vineyard that they were leasing. However, as we see in verse 3, when the servant arrived in order to collect payment from the tenant farmers or some of the fruit from the vineyard, the tenants here, church, for they took him, the servant, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And not only that, but verse 4, when the owner of the vineyard again sent to the tenants yet another servant, this time, church, the tenants struck that servant on the head and treated him shamefully. 
Only to then, as we go on to see in verse 5, when the vineyard owner once again sent another one of his servants to these aforementioned tenants, they, the tenants, they killed that servant, and so with many others. As verse 5, some they beat and some they killed. The servants here in the text, clearly representing the faithful prophets of God. Prophets like, as John MacArthur writes, Isaiah who according to tradition was sawn in half with a wooden saw, and Jeremiah, who was constantly mistreated and thrown into a pit, and Ezekiel, who faced hatred and hostility, Amos, who was forced to flee for his life, Zechariah, who was rejected, and even that of Micah, who was struck in the face. And yet the owner of the vineyard here, for he did not stop their church, but instead, verse 6, he still had another, a beloved son, who he sent to the tenants as well. The son here obviously representing Jesus Christ. And as we go on to see in verse 7, the tenants then, for they said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And their logic here, church, is likely this. That in seeing the son of the vineyard owner here, they assume then that the owner of the vineyard now is dead. And thus, if they kill the son here, then they, the tenants, would be able to take or to claim his inheritance and make the vineyard that of their own. Therefore, the tenants then, in verse 8, for they took him, the son of the vineyard owner here, and they did not welcome him here, church, or receive him here, church, or accept, affirm, approve, or show him any kind of good favor here, church, but instead, they, the tenants, they killed him here, church, and they threw him out of the vineyard here as well. To which, as the late Reverend John Henry Byrne once wrote, that surely a servant of the government might risk himself by going into the heart of a convict prison alone if he was the bearer of a royal pardon for all the inmates there. For in such a case, it would not even be necessary to look out for such a man who might be willing to carry that proclamation to all the convicts. Since if you give him the message of free pardon for all, He may go into that prison unarmed with all safety, like Daniel in the lion's den. And yet, when Jesus Christ came into this world, into this great convict prison, if you will, the great ambassador from God himself, Jesus Christ, bringing with him peace, for the world said, this is the heir, come let us kill him. For he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. And that's my loving appeal to you all here this morning, church family, quite simply is this. Never, ever, ever stop believing in and accepting and following the Son of God, Jesus Christ. No matter how much this world opposes the teachings of Jesus Christ, no matter how much this world condemns the ways of Jesus Christ, and no matter how much this world worships celebrities, politicians, musicians, and those with the most money instead of Jesus Christ. Since it is Jesus Christ and Christ alone, Christian, who came into this world to defeat the world 
works of the devil, to save you from your sins, to give his life up as a ransom for many, and to reconcile you back to your most holy God forever. Something that no philosopher or scientist, singer or songwriter, athlete or actor, president or prime minister, no matter how much money or power they might have, could ever accomplish for you. Therefore, do not harden your heart, church. Be blinded by the world, church, or follow the lead of the wicked tenets, a.k.a. the religious leaders here, church, and refuse, reject, and repudiate the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, since there is not only salvation, reconciliation, and eternal life in Jesus Christ, but also because God the Father has not, does not, and will not ever respond kindly to those, church, who ultimately reject his most holy Son, Jesus Christ, as well. Which brings us to point number two. Rejection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, leads to destruction, condemnation, and the wrath of our holy God. Rejection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, leads to destruction, condemnation, and the wrath of our holy God. Verses 9 through 12. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So following the death of the son in the parable... We see Jesus Christ then ask a rhetorical question in verse 9. That question being, for what will the owner of the vineyard do? Initially answering that question in verse 9 by saying that he, the owner of the vineyard, will come and destroy the tenants, which seemingly portrays here, church, when God ultimately judged Israel in 70 A.D., when the Romans came in and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem and wiped out the temple then as well. Only to then go on to say in verse 9 that the owner of the vineyard will also then give the vineyard over to others. The others here, church, likely referring to, as Mark Strauss explains, the apostles and the early church made up of both Jew and Gentile alike and that authority here, church, will be passed to these new leaders. To which Jesus Christ then completely changes metaphors here in verses 10 and 11 from a vineyard to that of a building and goes on to say to the Sanhedrin in verses 10 and 11, quoting from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In short, again, as Mark Strauss explains, Jesus is portrayed here as a stone 
rejected and discarded during the building of the temple, yet he will become the chief cornerstone of a new temple, the church made up of the body of Jesus Christ. To which, as David Burgess astutely points out, oftentimes paintings and books and music that were once acclaimed only a few years ago now are mostly forgotten about, whereas others that were spurned in their day are now firmly enshrined in the Hall of Fame. Composer Franz Schubert, for example, couldn't find steady employment in his day. And Rembrandt, for example, well, he died bankrupt. Mozart, he worked himself into a state of tuberculosis. Van Gogh, his paintings were spit on by respectable Dutch citizens in his native, native land during his day. And even Giuseppe Verdi was refused admission into the Milan Conservatory of Music. And yet Jesus Christ was the class example of all of these, for he represented far more than education and culture. For he, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life. And he was rejected more completely than any of these composers or artists. And yet some 2,000 years still have not been able to diminish any of his teachings or his glory. And thus again, church, my loving warning to you all here today is do not reject this cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Do not harden your heart toward this Messiah, Jesus Christ, and do not refuse to accept the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, since the reality is all those who reject this cornerstone, Jesus Christ, for they do not end up winning in the end, church, or gaining in the end, or reigning, prevailing, triumphing, or being vindicated for their rejection of Jesus Christ in the end, but instead, as Jesus Christ himself warns in Matthew's accounts of this parable, in Matthew 21, 44, the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, and, the one that, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. And thus, because of that, for let us be sure then, church, to always accept and to never reject the chief cornerstone of the church, Jesus Christ. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who is here first, or with the individual who has not received Jesus Christ, the individual who has not accepted Jesus Christ, and the individual who will be condemned for their sins if they do not repent of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Since it is Jesus Christ and Christ alone, non-Christian, who came into this world as truly God and as truly man to live and to dwell amongst us and to save us from our sins by initially living for us, non-Christian, the life that we could never live, and that he, Jesus Christ, lived a life here on earth, non-Christian, that was absolutely sinless and holy and righteous and good, and in doing so, fulfilled the law of God in its entirety, perfectly and completely non-Christian, all for the very children of God. However, that was not all that this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, accomplished for us while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because being that the wage of our sin, non-Christian, is death, 
or that the price of our sin, non-Christian, is death, Jesus Christ, also then non-Christian, paid the price for our sins that we as sinners simply could not pay by taking our sins upon himself and by then being crucified and nailed to, pierced and crushed on a cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute, even though he himself never sinned. And in doing so, he, Jesus Christ, then non-Christian, satisfied the justice of our holy God and appeased then completely the wrath of our holy God all toward his sinful children as well. And that's because of that three days later than this sinless son of God, Jesus Christ, for he didn't stay dead or buried in some grave, but instead being that sin and death had absolutely no power over him, he, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day non Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his perfect life, in his righteousness, and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, for as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I'd like to do so in light of the sovereignty of our God. And I'd like to focus on that as we close this morning, Christian, because it is so easy for us to look around at the world today and to very quickly become discouraged when we see our friends openly blaspheming God, or to become disheartened when we see our family members openly rejecting the commandments of God, or to become demoralized when we see our school districts openly denying the teachings of God, our government officials openly passing laws counter to the will of God, or even so-called evangelical pastors today openly affirming to their churches on Sunday morning beliefs that are completely against the very word of God, and to then begin to feel like our God is somehow losing these battles and taking on water, and losing some steam and being defeated and beaten and overwhelmed to the point that in the long run, he might even lose this entire war to this sinful and wicked and depraved generation. However, to summarize the thoughts of one commentator here, the parable of the tenets points to the glory and the power of God in orchestrating the rejection and the exaltation of his son and the continuation of his kingdom. Since verse 11, this was the Lord's doing. For Jesus quotes Psalm 118 here in order to showcase that despite appearances on the contrary, God was in control 
even of those who killed his prophets, and is in control of those who will kill his only begotten son. Since it is the Lord's plan that the stone be rejected so that he can make it the cornerstone. And thus the parable of Tenet shows us that every up and that every down in human history is under God's control. And that we can be confident in the future because we know that nothing happens outside of our God's sovereign plan for all things. And thus as we conclude this morning, church, for do not ever then allow the world's hatred for your God or their rejection of your God or what might seem like them actually prevailing or gaining victory over or against your God ever cause you to believe, even for a millisecond Christian, that they are somehow or some way preventing or stopping or impeding or defeating the sovereign will of your God. Since your God, church, make no mistake about it, is in heaven and he is doing all that he pleases, Psalm 115. And thus, if you are struggling to believe that truth this morning, Christian, in light of all the darkness that might be hovering around you at this time, then lovingly let me remind you that every decision is from the Lord, that every step is established by the Lord, that every purpose of His is accomplished by the Lord, and that our God, Christian, ultimately works all things out all according to the counsel of His will, which means then, Christian, that absolutely nothing then can ever stop any of your God's plans from the spread of the gospel, from the growth of His church, the coming of His kingdom, the salvation of His children, the perseverance of the saints, and a life for them that is everlasting. Therefore, no matter how dark or how evil or how bad this world around you gets, Christian, do not lose hope, since you have a God who is sovereign, who works all things together for your good and for his glory, and whose purposes can never, ever, ever be stopped, even when so much of this world, Christian, openly rejects his Son. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body do not ever let this world around us, Lord, and all its darkness and wickedness, evil and sin, ever dictate to us what we believe about you, but that we instead, Lord, always let the truth of your word dictate to us what we steadfastly believe, the truth that you sent your son Jesus Christ into this world, and that although the world rejected him, that he is still the Christ, the Messiah, the chief cornerstone, and the son of the most high God forever, who gives hope to the hopeless, life to the lifeless, peace to the peaceless, and offer salvation to the world and his name alone. Therefore, let that be, Father, where our hope in this life comes from, not from this world, not from our comfort, not from what man thinks or says or does to us, but instead let our hope be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since we know that if our hope is in that, Lord, we will never be disappointed. Since you, God, are sovereign, since you work all things according to the counsel of your will, and since your sovereign will, Father, will always be done. Therefore, strengthen us, Lord, in that truth, I pray, in that we know in our heart of hearts this morning and forevermore that what you decree, God, will always, always, always come to pass exactly as you see fit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, open our eyes and help us to see you as sovereign. Lord, you are sovereign over the persecution and the death of your prophets. You are sovereign over the death of your son, Jesus Christ, the rejection of him. And yet through your sovereign plan, you took him from rejection and exalted him to the position of the chief cornerstone of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the one who rose from the grave, who saves sinners from their sins and ushers them and adopts them and brings them into the family of God forever. He is the one in which the whole system of our salvation rests on. Thus, let us place our trust in him, be in all of him, and trust you, God, that you know what is best. If we are struggling with rejection this morning, if we are struggling with fear of man this morning, if we are struggling with sickness and disease and being hurt by loved one this morning, hurt in the workplace, confusion about this world, our kids' schools, Father, open our eyes and let us know that you are sovereign. From in you, God, we have received an inheritance, having been predestined to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Father, you work all things, not some things, not most things, all things according to the counsel of your will. Father, help us to trust in you like never before, because you are good, you are God, and you are sovereign. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, it seems only fitting uh, after hearing that sermon